0: In Genesis chapter 3, there's a beautiful passage of Scripture. I don't have time to deal with the temptation, but I like to deal with the judgment and redemption of mankind. And we'll just look at a few verses, beginning in verse 6. It says here, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Thank you very much. You're a good man. just thinking about that. (laughs) They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And we'll go, we'll stop there for now. When guests come to Tanzania, it's always a blessing. In Tanzanian culture, to have a guest is highly prized. In Tanzanian culture, You never ask a guest, how long do you plan on staying? That would be unacceptable. They come, you open your house, and when they want to come and when they want to leave is entirely at their discretion. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be hours, but you never would ask a guest, how long do you plan on staying? Because guests are privileged, and they are welcomed and highly delighted in. There's a saying in Swahili that roughly translates, when guests come the soul of the resident is revived. And we found that to be very true. Living in Tanzania, when we could receive guests, it was always a blessing. And we had a number of guests that came and revived our souls over the 10 years that we were living in Tanzania. We had a family, two families that came that used to be in our youth group when I was a youth pastor in Maryland. And they came now as married couples with children. They came to visit us. And I can remember just what, A delight it was. We would take them on little trips to show them our village, our town. Take them down to the market where we get our vegetables and our fruit. Take them on a dugout canoe on the lake in our our town where the hippos are. Uh, Or climb up the 8,000-foot volcanic mountain that we lived on. Go on a safari just half an hour, an hour down the road. There is a national park where the elephants and the zebra and the giraffe and the wildebeest are living naturally there's no gates or fences it's just their their normal migratory habitat and we would show them those things but I remember one night while they were there our kids convinced them to play a game of hide-and-seek out back and all the lights were turned off inside and out and there was a great game of hide-and-seek and And it was kind of a a game of hide-and-seek what's called sardines, where the, the, the hider hides, you find him. And once you find him, you have to hide with him or her. The kids are all like, yeah, I know that game. Yeah, it's a good game. But uh, the parents are like, never heard that one. It's been a long time. But they, we had a great time. Well, we didn't. I stayed inside because I was smarter. And the kids were outside playing with the, the workings and the Craigs that were there with us. And I remember after a while, there was kind of a lull. Because one of the young men named Gordon had found the perfect hiding place. It was in an outbuilding over a a patio up in the rafters. And he climbed up into the rafters. And at night, with all the lights out, there was absolutely no way that he was going to be discovered in the rafters there. And that was a memorable night. And really a game of hide and seek that goes down in Shipe family history. Because it was, they finally gave up and had to say, where are you? We just, we finally can't, we can't find you. This is, in Genesis chapter 3, it is the first hide and seek. And it's not really a game because it has eternal consequences. But it is essentially the pattern that we as humans have followed from that point till now. A hide and seek game from the Lord. I'd like us to examine it this morning and find some encouragement in these passages of Scripture. But we see essentially that Adam and Eve, they hide from God because of their sin. And and Adam and Eve, they've they've made this decision, they've turned their back on God, and then they begin to think, how can we escape the consequences of this? And they try to hide their sin and guilt By hiding from God. In this passage we just read, verses 6 through 10, we see Adam and Eve hiding from the presence of God. And like Adam and Eve, we try to do the same thing. If you examine your own heart and you're honest with yourself, I imagine you'll see some of these same tendencies within you. And I'm going to continue to call them Adam and Eve, though at this point in time, Eve is not yet named Eve. We'll see in verse 20 she gets the name eve her name at this point in time is woman and woman simply or isha simply means the female man and so at this point in time there's man and then there's the female man kind of like our english word woman which means the womb bearing man that's what the word comes from and so this idea here is that she's just she is the female man she is the counterpart to adam but in verse 20, she gets the name Eve or Hawa. And we'll see that that is very, very significant. But Eve has listened to Satan and she has taken the fruit and then she gave it to her husband. And while the fruit is still in their mouths, they look at each other and everything has changed. Their lives are forever changed. This is the very first morning after. The very first morning after. You know what I mean by that phrase, morning after. When you wake up or when you realize that some previous decision has completely changed your life. Usually a negative decision. In this case, it was forever going to be changed. It's that sense of agony and regret and guilt and shame and fear When they realize nothing will be the same. It can happen in a relationship today. A careless word spoken in anger. And you realize that word can't be brought back in. It's been said. And as a result, things are never going to be the same. It can be an action taken at work that gets you fired from a job that you really needed. And you realize, this is going to forever change the life of my family. It could be an act of immorality or drunkenness. When you realize, oh no, this is forever changing my life. Adam and Eve look at each other and they realize that they will never be the same. The innocence, the selfless love that they shared previously is gone. Now they look at each other and Adam looks at Eve and Eve looks at her husband and she says, this man is selfish. He would hurt me. And that relationship is forever changed. And it's the beginning, as we'll see, the beginning of marital conflict. When they hear the voice of God, they quickly hide themselves. The Bible says the wicked flee when no man pursues. In this case, God is coming to them in an environment that they have enjoyed previously, but they they try to run from the very presence of God. How, How do you respond when you are confronted with your sin how do you respond when you are confronted with some action that you have done that you know that you shouldn't have done do you get defensive (laughs) yeah you start making excuses you deny (laughs) I had a pastor friend of mine that was telling me that that there was a man that he was counseling that was caught in immorality caught in immorality and the very first thing he did was deny you didn't see what you saw and that's the tendency in human nature is to deny, to make excuses, or perhaps to get angry and somehow try to deflect the guilt that we're feeling through anger. Here, Adam and Eve go through the same idea and they try to hide their guilt by hiding from the very presence of God. And I, I, kind, of, I kind of picture Adam and Eve and they're cowering behind a tree. The Bible says they hid behind trees in the garden. And they're trying to hide from the all-knowing, all-seeing God. We sang about the omniscience of God this morning. And so God knows everything. He knows where they are. He sees everything. The God who created the trees, they're trying to hide from him behind the trees. And you think, how silly, how foolish, what were they thinking? And the Bible tells us that God came to them in the cool of the day, in the evening time. And it seems like it was a pattern that they would enjoy fellowship with God and as newly created beings. Remember, Adam and Eve weren't made, they weren't made as babies. They were full-grown adults, but they had to learn. And so probably they would talk to God and ask questions of God. What do we do with this type of tree? How do we prune this? What do we do with these animals? There's this fellowship that they're enjoying with God in the cool of the day. But today, when God comes, everything has changed. And they're no longer looking forward to meeting god they're hiding from him you may be doing much the same thing in your own life the bible tells us the eyes of the lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good and yet we try to hide from the lord Would you turn with me to Psalm 139? It's one of my favorite, one of my better loved psalms. There's so many great psalms, but Psalm 139 is one of the psalms that I I have come to over and over again to contemplate God and His knowledge of me. It speaks much about the omniscience of God, but specifically the omniscience omniscience of God as it pertains to me, and the omnipresence of God as it pertains to me. David describes these realities in a very personal way. And he begins in verse 1 of Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. And he says, Lord, you know when I stand up, when I sit down, when I go to the store, when I go to work. When I lay down, everything about me you know. And then he says, you understand my thoughts afar off. Meaning before I even think my thoughts, God understands my thoughts. There's not even a thought that you think that God does not completely know. He goes on to say, if we continue on just a little further in this psalm, in verse 7. It says, where, whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. It's always a great comfort to me when we were going to Tanzania the uttermost parts of the sea. We're going over to the shores of the Indian Ocean. But God is God. And even there his hand shall lead me. And his right hand shall hold me. What a comfort to know that truth. And he says here in verse 11. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me. Even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hides not from thee. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Isn't that an awesome truth? That God, as he looks at things that are hidden from our perspective, are completely known by him. The darkness and the light are the same. Day and night are no different for him. He sees everything that we try to hide. And he sees what is done in darkness as well as what is done in the light. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, just after saying the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. He says this, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but we are, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, or before whom we will stand and give an account. That we are all naked, we are all exposed before God. That that there's nothing, there's no aspect of our lives, our thoughts, our intentions, our our activities that we thought were hidden. Only only we ourselves know God completely knows. The reality is, (coughs) when when we do sin, we try to hide our sin. Have you ever noticed that when, maybe in your life, when you're living in sin, you've noticed this? You desire to not be around the fellowship of believers? And you find yourself trying to avoid church, to avoid other Christians, to avoid the Word of God? Very often, when I see someone has drifted away from church, church attendance, I know that there is some sin in their life that they are trying to hide from the presence of God. They are trying to deny their own guilt. And so they drift away from the fellowship of believers. They drift away from the preaching of the word of God because they're in a denial and they're trying to hide from the very presence of God. But the reality is that we can't fool God, that we do not hide from him. He sees and he knows all. And though Adam and Eve were cowering behind a tree in the garden, God saw them and he knew them completely. Another thing we see that is not only is it impossible to hide from God, but it's impossible to cover our guilt with human effort. One of the interesting things here in Genesis chapter 3, immediately upon sensing their own guilt, Adam and Eve begin to try to make coverings for themselves. They make fig-leafed loin coverings. In just one chapter previous, they're given very specific instructions. There's the first prohibition and the first warning. If you look with me in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt eat surely die. Now there's a lot to be unpacked in that one phrase and we don't have time to do that this morning. But the reality is if you study the rest of the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve lived a very long life. The Bible says Adam lived to be 930 years old. So you say, well, how is it that it says here, thou shalt surely die, yet Adam lived 930 years after that point. The very reality is that from that moment, Adam and Eve died spiritually. They were forever separated from God. That relationship that they had previously enjoyed was severed. They were separated from God permanently at that point in time. So death came upon Adam and Eve at that moment, which then resulted in physical death some 930 years after that point. And from that point on, all of our children have been born sinners. Adam's children my children, your children, they've been born sinners. And so the first thing I did, we have we've been blessed with seven children. but The first thing I did when every child was born, besides saying it's a boy or girl, was to hold the child and that first day to say, you know, you're a sinner. You beautiful little child are a sinner and you need a savior. And I began to express the gospel to them. But that was to remind myself that they may be cute and cuddly, But they're sinners and they need Christ. They need a savior. I've never had to teach any of my children to tell a lie. It's an instinctive thing. They know that themselves because they're born sinners. They're like their father. They're like their mother. They are selfish creatures by very nature. One one pastor put it this way. Children are, are born small so they don't kill us. And they're born cute so we don't kill them. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of truth in that. That all children from this point, from the fall of Adam and Eve till now, have been born sinners. And they do not have to be instructed in sin. Sin comes very naturally for them. But they make Adam and Eve at this point realize that they deserve death. And they think, how can we hide our guilt from God. So they make this fig-leafed covering somehow in trying to hide their guilt and their shame at what they'd done. And actually, by doing that, they revealed their guilt and their shame. It's very interesting because in Tanzanian culture, uh, pregnancy is not something that's discussed. In American culture, when a woman gets pregnant, she quickly puts it on Facebook, I'm pregnant, and this is so wonderful, and the due date is this, and then there's these gender reveals, and baby showers, and things of that nature. But in Tanzanian culture, it's not discussed. It's not that it's an issue of shame. It's just not, it's a private matter that's not discussed. And so, it, a woman could be nine months pregnant, and you really don't mention it. And she may be very large, and you it's not going to be discussed, but she'll wear a wrap around her body to conceal the growth that's taking place in her womb. And it's kind of humorous, my wife and I have joked, by trying to conceal that she's pregnant, she reveals that she's pregnant because the only person, only women in Tanzania that wear a wrap in that style are pregnant women. So the very effort to conceal reveals. And as much like what Adam and Eve did. Their effort to conceal their sin revealed that they were sinners they felt guilt they felt shame and so they sewed these fig leaves together to try to hide the guilt that they were feeling but it didn't hide anything and the reality is guilt is just as big a problem today in america as it was for adam and eve in those days we're more paralyzed perhaps than ever by guilt and shame and fear and we have some more sophisticated fig leaves that we use to cover our guilt. But there's are still an effort to hide our guilt. Religion is one way that many people try to hide their guilt. By religion and good works, doing good things. See, I'm not such a bad person after all. They feel guilt because they know they've sinned against a holy God. They feel that instinctively. But they do good things in an effort to cover some of that guilt. It may be, I've heard people say, well, I paid it forward at Chick-fil-A. Or I gave to the hurricane relief or to the earthquake relief in Haiti. And see, I'm not such a bad person after all. It may be a variety of religious activities that are designed for the intent of covering over guilt. Today as well, there's activities like yoga and meditation to clear bad energy. Clear the mind of negative energy so that I don't think about myself, my negative self-talk. The reality is, what is that? That's guilt. Our society is more dependent today on medication to get rid of what many people describe as anxiety. There is a real reality of anxiety, but many times it's guilt that we are feeling in the very presence of God. And so we try to hide our guilt with a variety of different medications and activities and religious works, because we sense that we have sinned against a holy God. And we are worthy of judgment. I think also our frenetic busyness in our 21st century America is an attempt to hide our guilt. Have to be busy doing this scholastic activity this this sports activity and this after school activity and we try to fill our calendar to the very maximum because if I sit still and think then I'll realize I'm guilty and I won't feel good about myself and it's an attempt to hide the guilt that we are all feeling because of sin but I want us to see is man hides you and I hide Because of sin. But God seeks. God seeks. God graciously seeks the fallen sinner. The entire story of the Bible is about God seeking us. God seeking lost sinners. And what's so amazing is at this point Adam and Eve have defied the commandment of the creator. And the creator it would be just to condemn them. But instead he comes and he walks and he calls out to them. And he takes on human form, a theophany. And he presents himself in the garden. The Bible says that all we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned each one of us away from God in rebellion. And yet God seeks us. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeks after God. But yet Jesus came to seek and to save them that were lost. Jesus came to seek the lost. And God demonstrates his love to Adam with probing questions. Verses 9 and verse 11 of Genesis 3 are these questions that God asks of Adam. The first one he says is, where art thou? Now again, when God asks this question, it's not that he lacked knowledge. And he's trying to figure out where Adam had gotten to. It's kind of like the mother who comes into the kitchen, and she sees her son has these cookie crumbs on his fingers and has got chocolate on the side of his lips. And she says, Have you been eating the cookies that I told you not to? Does she know? Or is she confused? I don't know what's going on here. No, she knows absolutely what happened. that, That he has eaten already. He's guilty. And she's trying to awaken the conscience with questions. And God is awakening Adam's conscience with questions. These are grace-laced questions. Guilt is not a bad thing because when we feel guilty and when we confess, then we are on the road to repentance and forgiveness. Then we can find grace, which we learned about this morning. Then we can find God's blessing in our lives that we don't deserve. Conviction should drive us to Christ so that we can find the forgiveness that we all need. But Adam and Eve, when they hear these questions, who has told you that you were naked? Because Adam says, I hid myself because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit where I I told you not to eat? "Uh Uh-oh, now I'm caught. Adam does what every human does from this point on in history. He throws his wife under the bus. And he says, it's the woman that... Lord, why would you give me a helper like that? This, this help me that you gave me, she has turned out to be a very, very bad helper. And he looks at the woman and he points a finger at her. And then he points a finger at God and said, how could you do that? A helper like her? She has been very, very bad. And the woman, when she realizes that she's been thrown under the bus... She says, no, 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 no. It was the serpent. He deceived me, and I took and I ate. This is is the pattern that we make as humans from this point on, making excuses. It's not my fault. I see it in my own life personally, the temptation to make excuses when I mess up. It may not even be an area of sin, just an area of, oops, that was a bad decision. That didn't turn out like I hoped it to. Well, who am I going to blame? You know, I didn't have all the information I needed to make that decision, so I should blame someone else. That's selfishness. It's pride. And that's what Adam and Eve begin to do at this point. And it's the beginning of the marriage conflict that you see in human history. There's... A number of ways that we can make excuses. I've been lonely, so what, what would you expect? Because, at this, I did, because I've been very, very lonely. My husband doesn't understand me. My wife doesn't respect me. It's the boss that I have. If you had a boss like that, you would respond in the same way. I've been very depressed. And as a result of this depression, I have some excuses in my life it's my hormones. It's the Irish temper that I was born with. It's my upbringing. And that's a clever one because and, and when you say it's my upbringing, you're actually bl- doing like what Adam did. You're blaming your parents and God. Because who gave you the parents? It's a God. It was God who gave you the parents. So you're saying, God, the parents you gave me were insufficient, and therefore because of them I have these excuses and I have done these things, but really ultimately it was your fault for giving me those parents and the upbringing that I had but all of this is an excuse and the reality is that we're not victims that you and I have been created in the image of God we've been created with dignity we've been created with responsibility as, as a result we are responsible for our actions I love the book of James it's a very practical New Testament epistle and in the first chapter of the book of James, James makes these, he says these words. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. So the tempt to say, Satan made me do it, or it's my parents' fault... Or it's the wife or the husband you gave me. None of that really fly. Because every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The reality is that each one of us are guilty before God. And we feel that guilt. And making excuses and Passing the buck and throwing someone under the bus is not the way to deal with it. If God is seeking you, if God is bringing conviction in your life, thank Him. Don't make excuses. God is seeking you, and He is using that conviction you feel in your heart to bring you to that place where you repent and you receive His forgiveness, you receive His grace in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your sin. Repent of your sins so that you can find forgiveness. But if we continue on in this chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, God sought them not only with questions, but also with punishment and promise. In Sunday school we read about this, and it's really a beautiful passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 14 all the way to verse 19. And God curses the serpent, ultimately Satan. He curses the woman, and then he curses the man. And all of these are very, very significant. But he begins the curse on the serpent. And he says in verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust that shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise His heel, and in the middle of this curse, there's a promise. In the middle of God's punishment, this beautiful promise comes. As you as you read this, you may have noticed something. It's 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 really it's a pregnant promise. It's full, and to unpack it would take time. But he says there's going to be enmity enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, if you think about this, women don't have seed. Men have seed. what does that mean? How can there be a seed of the woman then? It's an early indication of the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. God said, There's going, I'm going to do a miraculous thing. And through the seed of the woman, through the working of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, I'm going to bring forth a Savior that will crush the serpent, will crush sin and death, and will take the punishment that you, Eve, and you, Adam deserve through the seed of the woman. He will not come of natural generation, but he'll bring salvation through the seed of the woman. This is an amazing promise, thousands of years before Christ was born. But then in verse 16, he says unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over you that word sorrow is the same word that's translated sorrow in verse 17 about the pain that the man is now going to have in trying to put food on the table but he said what was joyful conception and bringing forth children is now going to be filled with pain and difficulty And every woman who's given birth can testify to that. And he said also, there is now going to be conflict in the home. You're going to want to take leadership in the home. And the God-ordained role, the man, is the one who will have to take leadership over you. You may not like it. You will not like it in the flesh. And this is the beginning of marital conflict that will continue to this day and is only set right in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can only be rectified and made right in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says here then to the man in verse 17, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Then in verse 19, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken for dust thou art unto dust shalt thou return. He says, Adam, this will now be the curse upon you. You will work hard to put food on the table. And that ground that you're tilling, you will become part of that ground in the end. This great curse of death I read recently a portion of the, the play of Shakespeare by, called Hamlet, and he talks about this reality. And he says, imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay. Whew. Caesar, the great king of the, the world, dead and turned to clay. Then he says, might stop a hole to keep the wind away. Oh, that earth which kept the world in awe should patch a wall to expel the winter's flaw saying Caesar while he was a man while he was alive he kept the world in awe but someday his body will return to dust he'll become clay he'll become soil and someday that very clay may be used to patch a wall in a house to keep the winter winter breeze out of the house wow 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 that humbles does it not When you think about that, we like to think of ourselves as successful, capable, strong. But we're dust, and we return to dust, and our bodies may be used to patch a wall. Makes you stop and think a little bit. Makes you realize who we are and the consequences of sin and the great judgment that is upon us. What a curse. But in the middle of that curse is a promise. There's a beautiful promise. And it so says, through the seed of the woman, one will come to reverse that curse. We read about this in Sunday school today. There will be no more curse. Awesome. Beautiful. The curse that is still on us will one day be ultimately reversed. The last enemy, death, will be defeated. So, Adam, he hears this curse, but he hears the promise intermingled with it. And he says in verse 20 Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. She's no longer the female man, she's life. Because through her, life would come. The promise of the the, the curse of death would be gone and the promise of life would come through the seed of the woman. So he says, woman, you are now life. I trust the very promise of God that life will come through you and the seed of the woman. And he calls her Hawa, life. Swahili word for Eve as well. The Swahili name is Hawa. You are life. Because through you will come he that is life. What happens next is amazing. Verse 21 says, unto Adam and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed clothed them. Notice he didn't shear a sheep and make a woolen garment for them. He made coats of skin. And the only way to make a coat of skin is to butcher the one who has the skin, to kill the animal, and to take that skin and make garments of it. Now we can talk to some degree about what is referred to here as modesty because the garment is significant and the word that's used for this garment is different than the one that's used for their loin coverings that they made. And it's something that covers down to the knees. But that's not really the essence of this passage. The the essence of this passage is that God said, you deserve death. But he gave mercy. And he said, I'm going to kill this animal as a substitute. His lifeblood will be drained for yours. And all of this is a picture that from this point on, the rest of the Bible is is illustrating. Every sacrifice, whether it's Noah's sacrifice or Abraham's sacrifice or Cain and Abel's sacrifice in Genesis 4 or the Levitical sacrificial system, every sacrifice is saying, I deserve death, but a substitute will be killed for me. And it's picturing the Lamb of God that was slain for us. That Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of a woman, would become the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So from Genesis, the whole Old Testament is saying there is one coming who will ultimately take away the sins of the world, who will take the condemnation that you and I all deserve, that we are all guilty of, And he will bear that on his own body on the cross. And he will be punished as a substitute for your sins and for my sins. That is an awesome truth. The Bible says that our sins have separated us from God. And that the wages of sin is death. But God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. To be made sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Speaking to the Laodicean church, he says, "...because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked." I think this fits so well our society today in America. We're rich, and I've got this. We're Americans. We've got what, everything it, that it takes. But Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiments that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He said, You're naked. You're miserable, you're poor, you're blind. But I will give you all that you need. So how do I get this white garment, this white raiment that is promised in Revelation 3? The same way Adam did. It's the same way that Adam got it. By believing the promise of God. Now what's so amazing is up to this point, Adam had believed the lie of Satan. You will be like God. And he had to say, no, I no longer believe the lie of Satan. I am believing the promise of God that he will send life, he will send forgiveness through the seed of the woman. And the very act where he said, woman, you are Eve, you are life, was a declaration of his faith. It was a declaration of his repentance, turning from that lie that he had believed and trusting the truth of God. And at that moment, God took a lamb and he slaughtered it. He said, I cover your sin with blood. And one, the Lamb of God will come and take away your sins. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You must confess that you have sinned. You have gone your own way. You have turned from the way of God. And that you can't cover your sin with your own fig leaves of religion and good works and meditation and medication. You must turn from those things and say, I trust God. I trust His promise. I trust Jesus Christ and His sacrifice to cover my sins. Jesus says, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest if you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, you're hiding from God right now. God is seeking you. He is seeking you through the message of the word. He is seeking you through those grace-laced arrows of guilt that you feel. Don't run from them. Don't hide from them. Don't make excuses. Come and humbly, with a broken heart, repent and say, God, I need a Savior. And you will be saved whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise of scripture. Christian, we have the greatest message of all. God has tasked us to be the seekers as well, to go in his name, to seek a lost world that's hiding. Let's not deny it, they're hiding, but they need the message of salvation. They're still just dust to dust. And they may be pompous, and they may be powerful, and they may be wealthy, but they're still just dust. And the curse is still upon them. But we know the one who has lifted the curse. And we can proclaim that message to those who are under the curse. We have the greatest message of all times. Let us not be ashamed of it. Let's be bold. Because we've had the curse lifted from us.